Oh. How are all of you doing? Good. Um, so I, I want to ask a question first before I begin, uh, which is uh, who here is a, is a legal expert? No fuga in the crowd. <laughs> okay, right, exactly. That's why. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Okay. Good. Yeah. Let's. All right. So. Right. Okay. This is. Can always count on him to do say the right thing and do the right thing. All right. So. Yeah. All right. So. Um. So we're in a law faculty, so it makes sense that we talk about law, right? And in Islamic law, there is there is a, a you know a tax every year that a person has to pay kind of surplus, you know, income, that kind of stuff. And it's, what is it known as? This is the first, this is, this is a underhand kind of, what's that called? That tax, I guess it's translated as alms, alms tax. What, what's it called in Arabic? What do we call it? What was the term in Arabic? Zakat. Okay, good. Zakat. So, um, we, you know, if you have a treasure, if you have something stored away, you have money, you have to kind of pay this treasure. You know, you have to take from it, pay it out, it's not yours. Now, we heard about the hadith of the hidden treasure earlier. And if I were to tell you that, according to a Sufi view, not from Ibn Arabi, but uh, I can't see him disagreeing with it. If I was to tell you that God himself has to pay the zakat, what would you think of that? Because he has all the treasuries, right? He is the hidden treasure. So he has to distribute this zakat. Now, what does he have to pay? What does he pay? I'm hoping Amr can help me. We have to pay money, right? We have to pay money. Well, God's not going to pay money. Who's going to pay it to? But he has to distribute. He has to distribute. He has the treasure. He has to share what he has. What do you think? Yes, there's some externalization, right? And uh, what this author t- tells us is that he says that God has to distribute mercy. That's the zakat on his hidden treasure. So pay attention to that. He also says that there's a distributor of mercy. Who do you think that could be? Prophet. Yeah. So, he, so he's the one who distributes the mercy. He's kind of like an intermediary between uh, God and human beings. So keep in mind two things here. Uh, one, it's the question of intermediaries, because we're going to talk about translation. And then the other thing is the question of uh, mercy. And what could mercy have to do with translation? Well, let's let's wait and see. Um, now allow me to first uh, begin with another set of observations. So secondly, uh, these directly pertain in one way or another to uh, everyone in this room, I'm assuming. And perhaps also those uh, watching online, which I'm noticing is a very substantial number. Mashallah. Now, we're invested in the act and art of translation, taking one of humanity's most profound and meaningful authors, Ibn Arabi, and explaining him in English and this for the benefit of people. That's what I think we're all trying to do. Now, those who do this professionally recognize that there are formal requirements for such an undertaking, including, in case you want to get into this, mastery of Arabic, a thorough background in Islamic thought, intimate knowledge of the Quran and prophetic traditions, and deep familiarity with various fields of study in the Islamic tradition, such as grammar, legal theory, logic, cosmology, so on and so forth. Yet anyone who steps into Ibn Arabi's world becomes quickly aware that translating him is not simply a matter of philology and scholarship. 
There seems to be a kind of existential requirement that also informs his task. This requirement, I hope to suggest, becomes more apparent when we first come to terms with not only Ibn Arabi's complex worldview and language, but what emerges as his own theory of translation. In other words, we may have a lot to say about translating Ibn Arabi, but what does Ibn Arabi himself have to say about translation? Now, perhaps if we understand our situation as translators, in light of Ibn Arabi's understanding of translation, will we be in a better position to come to terms with what it is that he's trying to do as a translator and what we are doing as translators of his writings and as also readers of these translations? This applies to both the readers and the translators. Now, while my concern is with the details of Ibn Arabi's theory of translation, it can easily be argued that his perspective or this perspective informs the entire Sufi tradition both before and after him. This explains why in his book entitled Leva'e, or Gleams, Abdurrahman Jami, about whom we've already heard, who was, of course, a major follower of Ibn Arabi, he says, now I'm going to quote this saying, this is a translation from Professor Shidik. So he, it goes like this. The author has no share, save the post of translator, and no portion but the trade of speaker. Let me, let me read that again. The author has no share, save the post of translator, and no portion but the trade of speaker. Whatever this theory of translation is, there is no doubt that Professors Chirik and Morata have embodied it in their own work, and not just in translating Ibn Arabi, but also in translating the works of many other masters in the Islamic tradition, be it Rumi and Samani in Persian, Farghani and Mulasadr in Arabic, and Luzhir and Wang Dayu in Chinese. Now, an exposition of Ibn Arabi's theory of translation thus has the added benefit of giving us a window into how this theory informs the translation practices and methods employed by our uh, honored teachers, whom it should be noted their students lovingly refer to as, and this will be a revelation for some of you, mas- the masters of the translators. We call them the shiyukh and mutarjimin. So, <laughs> okay. Now, as expected for Ibn Arabi, there are multiple level- levels to uh, tarjama or translation, so it's never a simple matter with him. Uh, my focus here will specifically be on translation as it pertains to divine speech and words. The standard Arabic dictionaries tell us that a tarjuman, that is a translator or interpreter, is anyone who can clarify, mufassir, words or statements. It is in this sense that Ibn Abbas, the Prophet's cousin and master of Quranic interpretation, has the honorific title tarjuman al-Quran, or clarifier of the Quran. The Prophet himself is often referred to as a tarjuman by Ibn Arabi, normally calling him the translator of the real, tarjuman al-Haq, and this in the context of conveying God's words, but also uh, in the context of conveying the Hadith Qudsis, the sacred sayings. Now, in fact, Ibn Arabi argues that the expression Tarjuman al-Haq, or translator of the real, applies more broadly to any being who conveys God's words, such as angels and even individuals who sing his praises. Uh, and of course, a fortiori, the expression applies to the friends of God, the awliya Allah. And hence, Ibn Arabi is also a translator of the real. And this is why he refers to himself as a Tarjuman in many of his own books, for example, in the Kitab al-Abadila, the Book of God's Servants, he calls himself a Tarjuman, and many other such words like this. Now, what makes human beings translators of the real is ultimately the purity of their hearts. Since Ibn Arabi says, the tongue is a dalil or indicator of what is in the heart. So this is how he puts it. Look at how beautiful this is and how succinctly perfect it is. He says, the tongue is the translator of the heart. Al-Nisan Tarjuman al-Janan. The tongue is the translator of the heart, and the heart is the hearer of the all-merciful. And this calls to mind one of my favorite passages in Sufi literature, which goes back to the 
Persian Sufi philosopher Enel Qazar Hamadani, who died about 30 years before Ibn Arabi was born, um, telling his students about you know the divine mysteries that are revealed to him. This is what he says. He tells them, you have not heard these, or the mystery, from my tongue. You have heard it from my heart. You have heard it from the spirit of Mustafa, the Prophet And whatever you have heard from the spirit of Mustafa, you have heard it from God. So, so it goes from God to the Prophet, to his heart, to his tongue, and then to the ears of his listeners. Now let's go back to the Prophet as a translator of the real. Ibn Arabi insists that in conveying the Quran in particular, the Prophet is its translator in the deepest sense possible, although the speaker is God. The Prophet is specifically a translator in the sense of being a particular delimited container for the Word of God. Yet with respect to the Quran, as reciters, we are also translators. In chapter 68 of the Futuhat Meccan uh, openings, uh, which is on the mysteries of purity, Asrat Tahara, Ibn Arabi states there are two levels of purity required to approach the Quran. Uh, there's purity of the body, which is required to physically touch the Quran. And then there's purity of the heart, which is required to be touched by the Quran. So there's two kinds of purity required. Um, and if you can do that, then of course you're able to effectively translate the meanings of the Quran. So this is a long passage, but I'll cite it for you because it really it drives the point home very well. He says, the Quran reciter is the deputy of the real in translating for him through the deputy's speech. One of the uh, names of God is the All-Holy, Al-Quddus, which means pure. It is thus fitting for the servant that when he acts as the deputy of the real, in his speech and through his recitation, that he be holy, that is outwardly pure with the ablution as laid down in the Sharia. And it is fitting that the servant be inwardly pure with faith, presence, pondering, and the like, and that from the beginning the servant give priority to the recitation of the real and then follow it, acting as a translator of what the real recites to him and says to him. The Sheikh goes on to note that there are two kinds of translation involved when the Quran reciter acts as the deputy of the real. There is a kind of pre-verbal translation which allows the one present with the reciter to be reminded of the divine word through the state of the recitation itself. And then there is a translation proper which comes through the speech of the Quran reciter and allows the one present to hear the word of God. Now a key point to note is that translation is closely tied to transmission and the existential state of the one doing the translating. This is why the Sheikh also says that when the translator is conveying in appropriate language the meanings that come to him at that given moment, truthfulness and the absence of egoism and worldliness are essential. Otherwise, you can't be a good translator. That is to say, the meanings need to fit into proper linguistic forms in order for there to be a truthful translation. If one encounters meanings that cannot fit into linguistic forms properly, they are better left unsaid, even if the linguistic forms originally correspond to the meanings given to the translator. And when new meanings come, thus, and words are no longer capacious enough to contain them, the translator must remain silent or find more suitable expressions to translate these meanings. Now, a key insight in Islamic theology is that God is al-mutakallim, or the speaker. God's being a speaking agent entails a cosmic picture in which all things are not only addressees of divine speech, but are themselves acts and embodiments of this speech. That is to say that God's speech in Islamic metaphysics has a self-reflexive aspect, and it also has a generative aspect. For Ibn Arabi in particular, all things in the cosmic order form so many individual parts of God's speech. They each arise within the breath of the all-merciful, Nafas al-Rahman, 
which is the divine creative breath which brought the cosmos into existence. Or framed differently, we can say that each thing in the cosmos constitutes a reverberation of the divine command, kun bi, which itself brought the cosmos into being. Seen as an articulated book, then the cosmos contains words that contain messages, which are then to be read, understood, and followed. Now, the most important Quranic verse that informs this perspective is Quran 41.53, uh, which reads that we will show them our signs in the horizons and within themselves until they know that he is the real. Just as the Quran as a speech of God contains signs or ayat, so too does the cosmos as God's articulated speech contain signs. In other words, reading the signs as parts of God's speech is tantamount to translating them. There thus needs to be speech and hence words for translation to occur. And since the cosmos is nothing but divine words, our interaction with these words always entails translation. To be sure, the signs are also found in ourselves, which means that translation has both exterior and interior dimensions. Translation is as much about reading what is without as it is reading what is within. At the same time, translation for Ibn Arabi is not just an act of reading and conveying. It also entails careful and patient listening. Listening. Specifically listening to the existentiating divine command B. Proper listening will be obstructed by the all-deafening noise that exists throughout the cosmic order. But if people can rend these phenomenal veils and hear the eternal divine address, they will come to know and thus translate to themselves the divine mercy and compassion that pervades all things, both in this life and the next life. So I'm going to read this one passage from the Puttahat. Again, it's a little long, but but uh, he says it so well here. He says, The hearing needs to rend all causal veils until it hears the word be. God created the strength of faith in the believer. This power pervades his hearing, so he perceives the word be. Then this strength pervades his seeing, so he witnesses the engenderer of the causes. God does all of this from the breath of the all-merciful, so that through it, he can be merciful towards whosoever worship other than him when he exacts the rightful dues of the associates who declare themselves quit of him on the day of standing. We all stand up before God. Normally translated as the day of resurrection, but Professor Shirek insists that it's not a resurrection, it's literally qiyamah, you stand up. There's much more concrete image. Now the act of translation as reading, hearing, and conveying is therefore a continuous process and fundamentally our existential situation. Since God never ceases speaking, we never cease translating. But not all translations are equal. This is where Ibn Arabi's insistence on the purity of the receptacle of divine speech comes in. Only by being pure and unsullied by distance from God can we properly convey supersensory realities in delimited and particularized ways, thereby translating through forms the meanings that derive from the world of the forms. Thank you very much.